So we're continuing on with the final four series uh, where we are focusing in on the last major events of Christ's Holy Week, uh, His Passion Week, before He went to the cross, includes going to the cross and includes His resurrection. Uh, But we're focusing in on on those last very, very important details uh, about His time on earth and as His ministry came to a close. Last week, we started off our series by talking about the Last Supper. And the Last Supper was really the first Lord's Supper. And we said that Jesus fulfilled all the Passovers that came before that final one that He shared in the upper room with His disciples. And He didn't just fulfill the Passover. He also fulfilled the Old Covenant. And He made it completely obsolete ushering in and inaugurating the new covenant that he inaugurated and made official and confirmed by his blood. We talked about that last week, and I hope that God used what we studied and what we considered to really grip your heart. And this week, as we continue on, uh, we're picking up really right after the events of the upper room. Um, scripture tells us that after they, they had their Passover meal, uh, which was the Last Supper, the first of the Lord's Supper, it was also at this time that Jesus washed his disciples' feet. He gave them instructions. He dropped the, the bomb on them that one of them was going to betray him. They argued about that. They argued about then who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom. And there was all sorts of discussion that they had. And then Jesus gave them instructions to leave. He said, it's time to go. We need to leave this place. And they journeyed to the Mount of Olives, where Jesus had been staying through, through this, these last days of his final week. And so we're going to pick up right there. Luke chapter 22 is where we are. And verse 39 is where we'll start. And uh, we'll look here in the first few minutes at Luke 22, 39 through 42. Luke 22, 39 through 42. And it says this. He went out, and he went out from the upper room with his disciples. Supper was over. He went out and made his way as usual, as had been his practice every night throughout this, this week, this final week, this holy week, as usual to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. When he reached the place, and the place is the Garden of Gethsemane. It was at the foot of the Mount of Olives, and the Garden of Gethsemane, Gethsemane literally means the place of crushing. The place of crushing. It was named that because it was uh, in, in uh, olive grove, and there was a, uh, an oil press there for the olive oil. So the olives would be collected, and they'd be put in this, this press, and the press would mash them all down, and, and all the pulp and everything was there, and, and the, the precious sweet oil would just flow out and be contained in, in jars that they would take and use and sell. And so this was a place of crushing, awfully fitting then, that this is where Jesus made his way. Not a coincidence in any, in any way. Intentional and deliberate, as was everything that Jesus did. So this is where he made his way to. The Garden of Gethsemane, the place of crushing. And he told them, pray that you may not fall into temptation. He had already warned them that his time was coming that they were going to be scattered. He warned Peter specifically 
that Satan's desire was to sift him like wheat. So he said, pray, because the enemy is going to come at you. These times that are coming are, are going to be the hardest you have ever had to face. You're going to be tempted to doubt. You're going to be tempted to despair. You're going to be tempted to to just run away and and walk away from even your faith. Don't do it. Pray so that you don't fall into, into temptation. Verse 41 says this, Then he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, knelt down and began to pray. And here's what he prayed. Father, literally, Daddy. He used the word Abba. Daddy. Papa. If you are willing, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Looking all the way back to the beginning of of our story as humanity... In the Garden of Eden, sinless man became sinful because he chose to say, my will, not yours, be done. And that's what ushered in the fall of man. That's what ushered in sin into our human nature. That's what ushered in all of the problems that we've had ever since. All the decay and disaster in our world. All that is messed up and wrong and evil in our world and in our lives. It all stems from that choice. Where man that started off being sinless became sinful. All because they said, It's my will, and I'm not moving. It's my will, not yours, that I want to be done, that I'm going to pursue. That's what happened in the first garden, in the Garden of Eden. In the Garden of Gethsemane, though, we see that the way was paved for man's righteousness, which was lost in Adam, to be restored. All because the sinless Savior chose to say, not my will, but yours be done. Because he chose that, because he was willing to do that, the way was paved for our righteousness to be restored. Jesus, the Son of God, was willing to be crushed by his Father's condemnation so we could be made whole by his love. That's what he was willing to do. By him saying, not my will, but yours be done. It was his expressing that he was willing to be crushed at this place of crushing. He was willing to receive his father's crushing condemnation in our place. Also that we could be made whole by his father's love. This cup that that he was saying, please, if there's any way... Remove it from me. Let this cup pass from me. The cup that he was alluding to and and referencing was the cup of all the divine wrath and fury and anger and judgment on all of our sin. All through the Old Testament, the cup of wrath was, was mentioned over and over again by God through His prophets 
as they warned the nation of Israel, you need to flee from your sin. You need to repent because if not, God is going to pour out the cup of His wrath on you. And here, now, right before the cross, Jesus knows His hour is at hand and He knows that on the cross, all of the Father's judgment, the full weight of His wrath is going to fall on Him. Jesus looked ahead to the cross, and it wasn't, it wasn't the nails of the cross. It wasn't the suffocation that eventually would claim His life as He gave up His life. It wasn't the mocking that Jesus was most in anguish over. The anguish that filled Jesus' heart and His mind that caused Him in His humanity to say, if there's any way, please let this cup pass from me. The anguish that He was anticipating, the cup He was asking to have removed if it was possible, was all of that holy, just judgment that was going to fall on His shoulders. And knowing what that would result in, it would result in what absolutely happened on the cross, His Father turning away from His Son. For the first time in all of Jesus' eternal existence, He would not have complete, perfect communion with His Father. He would not have that, that perfect, unhindered fellowship with His Father that He had enjoyed for all of eternity past. Because His Father could not look at His Son who became sin for us. That's the cup that Jesus was going to drink. That's the cup that the Father was was just poised, ready to pour out on His Son. That's the cup Jesus was saying, please, please, if there's any way, let this be removed from Me. Let there be another way. Please, let this be taken from Me. Not, not what I will. Even though I want this, Father, I, 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 don't, I don't want to have to drink this cup. I don't want to have to bear the full weight of all your wrath and judgment. Yet, nevertheless, I will submit. I won't cling to my will and what I want. I will give it up. And I will receive what you have for me. I will accept your will for me, even if it includes this horrible cup of your wrath. And Jesus, Jesus took that cup. Jesus drained the cup of divine judgment for us so that the cup of divine mercy could overflow to us. That's what Jesus did here. There's, there's two gardens. There's Two men. One was the the first created man, created by the very one who now was in this second garden. And the choice was still there. As Adam had a choice, so Jesus had a choice. Adam chose to cling to his will and to say, It's my will that I'm going to pursue, not yours. Jesus chose to say, 
not my will. Even though I have divine prerogative, I'm not clinging to my divine rights. I'm letting it go, and I'm choosing your will over mine. And I'm willing to take the cup you have for me to drink. And Jesus drank the first cup. He drank it. He drained it empty completely. Nothing was left. Not a drop was left in that cup. He drank it all, emptied it completely, all so that the cup of God's divine mercy could absolutely overflow to all of us. That's what happened in the garden. That's what Jesus chose for you and for me, all out of love. Not a drop left in the cup of God's wrath. And a cup full and overflowing of all of His mercy and favor and grace for you and me. All because of what Jesus did. That's love. That's love. There's no love like that. No love comes close to the love that Jesus expressed for us that day. And the cup that every Christian has to drink from will inevitably contain trial and tribulation, pain and persecution. Every cup that, that, that we drink in this life will be full of those things at some point, in one way or another. Every Christian is going to have to drink from that kind of a cup. Jesus promised that. He said, in this world, you will have tribulation. You will have trial. You will suffer. But be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. But we have to remember that first part. Jesus didn't say, come to me and everything will be great. Come to me and you'll never have any problem at all. Come to me and everything you want is yours. Just name it and claim it. It's not what Jesus promised. And so when you hear that from any preacher, speaker, writer, reject it. Because that's not of Jesus. That's not what He promised. He said in this world you're going to have trouble. You're going to have trial. You're going to have persecution. People are going to hate you because of me. But it's okay, because you win. You win, because I won. And I give my victory to you. So Jesus promised those things. He promised that if you come to Him, and you drink the cup of what it means to be a follower of Christ, you're going to drink a cup that's, that's full of trial and trouble and persecution and, and suffering and pain. But it's okay, because you still win. And it's okay because He's with you through it. And it's okay because even though you, you drink those things, you don't drink what Jesus drank and drank all of for you. So Jesus promised that. So did Paul. Paul said, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. It's a promise. It's a guarantee. So that's the, that's the cup, Christian, that's going to be before you all through your, your life. Until God calls you home or until Christ returns, that's the cup you're going to have to drink. But it will never, ever contain the wrath of God because Jesus drank all of that cup in our place. Hallelujah, right? 
Whatever cup you have to drink, whatever hard cup that that you don't want to have to drink, that you still will have to in this life, it will never compare to the cup that Jesus drank on your behalf and drained for you so that you don't ever have to experience what was in that cup. The full measure of God's divine wrath and judgment for your sin and mine. Here's what Charles Spurgeon said about this cup that Jesus was praying, agonizing over in this garden. Charles Spurgeon said this, I am never afraid of exaggeration when I speak of what my Lord endured. All hell was distilled into that cup of which our God and Savior Jesus Christ was made to drink. And I would, I would add, chose to drink, willingly, submitted to. But that's absolutely right. All, all that is hell, all that makes hell, hell. Not the fire, not the darkness. The separation from God and His creation. The, the total constant pouring out of all of His righteous indignation against our iniquity. That's what makes hell, hell. And it was all poured into that cup that Jesus would drain. All for us. Well, let's let's go back to Jesus in the garden. He had just said, if if it's possible, I pray that this cup could be removed from me, but not, not what I will, what you will be done. Luke 22, 43, we continue this narrative, and and it says, Then an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him and encouraging him. And being in anguish, he prayed more fervently. And his sweat, he he was praying so fervently and in such anguish that he was sweating profusely. And it says this, And his sweat became like drops of blood falling to the ground. It's either that, that his sweat was so heavy and, and so constant that it fell as if bl- drops of blood were falling, or, or it was a, a literal and observable condition that's very rare, but still able to be seen and, and known and, and observed and diagnosed even today, called hematidrosis. That's a real syndrome, hema, hematidrosis. And it's where the capillaries underneath your skin and your blood vessels actually burst due to extreme stress and, and trauma and pressure and can absolutely mingle with your sweat so that you actually do literally sweat blood. It's very rare, but people have it. And when people have that, that occurrence, it usually means they are at the point of death, that their heart is about ready to stop. They're, they're about ready to suffer a, a massive failure of their heart and, and other organs that they're about to shut down, which Jesus actually says in another account, he says, my soul is sorrowful even to the point of death. And who is, who is writing this particular account? I mean, this, this account, this garden, 
Uh, Matthew writes about it. Mark writes about it. John writes about it. But who is writing about it right now? Who are we reading the account of? Dr. Luke. A medical doctor. I don't think that there's any coincidence in him focusing on that detail considering he's the only one to focus on that detail of the other writers. And I believe that it is a literal condition that Jesus is suffering here, hematidrosis, that he is in such anguish. Again, not over the pain of the cross physically, such anguish over knowing what's going to happen spiritually to him with all of our sin coming crashing down on him. In our place. Verse 45 When he got up from prayer and came to the disciples, he found them sleeping, exhausted from their grief. Verse 46 He says, This, why are you sleeping? He asked them, Get up and pray so that you won't fall into temptation. Agony anguish, brokenness. That's what Jesus was experiencing. And if that wasn't enough, it gets worse for him. Look at what verse 47 says. While he was still speaking, suddenly a mob came, and one of the twelve named Judas was leading them. He came near Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? That kiss was a common Middle Eastern sign of of greeting and of love. People did it all the time. And Judas told the authorities, they said, well, how will we know which one of your group is Jesus? And Judas said, I'll give you a sign. The one I go up to and kiss, he's the one that you need to take. He's the one you're looking for. He's Jesus. Which, I mean, they should have recognized him without that, but they felt like they needed that sign. So it was prearranged. So sure enough, Judas comes, kisses his master, his friend, and the Savior he rejected and betrayed. John's account of this event tells us that uh, all the Jewish leaders that were gathered to arrest Jesus and all the soldiers that were with him fell backward when Jesus went out and said, who are you looking for? And they said, we're looking for Jesus. And Jesus said, in John's account, he said, I am he, ego ami. And that was the, the complete connection to the Old Testament name of God, I am Yahweh, the great I am. And when he said that, they all fell back at the force and the power of that name. And what's amazing to me, they still got up and arrested him anyway. (laughs) Which shows Jesus was in control of the whole thing. And they would never have been able to seize him unless he willingly allowed it to happen and caused them to do it. That's what took place, though. So in this event, this this second of the final four major events we're looking at in this series, in this event, there are two major life-shattering 
events of significance that take place. Not only is Jesus in agony and, and to the point of death, even before going to the cross, just at anticipating what's coming in this cup of, of God's wrath, but now, now he is betrayed by one of his own and arrested, which will lead to a shameful trial and an excruciating death. You know, betrayal always grabs and grips our hearts. It always does. The concept of betrayal. That's why so many books are, are full of betrayal. The, the hero gets betrayed often in stories, and movies are full of them as well. Think of some of the, the most classic scenes and, and situations of betrayal. Think of of uh, Saruman in Lord of the Rings betraying everyone to serve Sauron. Think of Anakin Skywalker betraying all the Jedi. Think of, in the Chronicles of Narnia, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Edmund betraying his brothers and all of Narnia to the White Witch. Caesar being betrayed by his best friend Brutus. He was a real backstabber. Think of in your life. Many of you know what it is to be betrayed. Many of you have had that happen, and and you know there's no pain like the pain of betrayal, especially when it's one that you never expected to do it. You never expected it to happen. Not by them. Maybe everyone else, but not them. And you know the the piercing of your soul that happens when you go through something like that. But no matter how profound any literary example of betrayal is, no matter how painful your own personal feeling of betrayal might be, not to minimize what you've gone through, but friends, no one ever will experience the magnitude and pain of betrayal that Jesus did. No one. There's no betrayal as great as the one He suffered. The redeeming aspect of that, though, is that it enables Jesus, like everything else in Jesus, it enables Him to really, fully understand and identify with you and with me in those times where we have been betrayed. He's able, more than anybody else, to come alongside you and say, I get it. I know how much this hurts. Let me enter into this pain with you. Let me walk with you. Jesus knows what it was like. Jesus Jesus was willing to be betrayed and captured so that we could experience the Father's faithfulness and freedom forever. That's what He was willing to do, and that's why He allowed Himself to do it. So that we could experience the Father's faithfulness and freedom forever. That's why He was willing to be betrayed and captured. He did it for you. He did it for me. And that carries with it a really high level of responsibility for you and me. 
Knowing Jesus, our Savior, did this for us. Knowing that he, he drained the cup of the Father's wrath and fury in our place so that he could give us the overflowing cup of the Father's mercy. Knowing that, and now as we just have, have read together, knowing that he was willing to be betrayed by one closest to him and captured and arrested also that we can know the faithfulness and freedom of his Father that carries with it a huge amount of responsibility for you and me. And here's what I mean by that. Every choice to sin that we make, every choice to sin, is a choice to betray our Savior. Every time you and I willingly choose sin over righteousness, willingly choose self over the Savior, we are playing the part of Judas. You and I are really frequently, when it all comes down to it, we're a bunch of Judases. Every choice to sin is a choice to betray our Savior. But, but, every single time that we confess that and repent of it, every time we say, you know what, yes, I agree, Jesus, my, my choosing to sin the way I did my choosing to sin by doing that, by saying that, by going here, by being that, I admit and acknowledge to you that that was a betrayal of you. I have betrayed you just like Judas did. I confess that. I beg for your forgiveness from that. I repent of it. I reject that. I turn away from it. Every time we confess and repent of our betrayal by sin, He is faithful to forgive and cleanse and restore us. Isn't that amazing? There's no one else like Jesus. No one else does what He does. 1 John 1.9 gives us that promise. If we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Do you know that Savior today? Do you know the One who does that? I hope so. And all church, in response, in response, Christian, to that Savior and to all that He did and does for us, we need to follow His example and in every area of our life say, not my will, but Your will be done. And we need to be fully devoted to Jesus, fully devoted, by constantly rejecting sin in all forms. We have to fight against being like Judas. Because being like Judas comes far easier to us than we often realize or care to admit. It's, it's like it's right there all the time just beneath the surface, an inner Judas. It's really what we have. And we have the freedom from it if you're in Christ by the power of the Spirit. You don't have to be like Judas. You don't have to give in. You can fight. You can choose to surrender your will, to surrender your choices, to embrace righteousness. You have that available to you if you're in Christ. 
But we have to realize and be on guard against the fact that there's always going to be, while we're in this life, a Judas trying to get out. We've got to fight against it. Got to fight against it. So in response, may we say in every area of our life, not my will but yours be done. And may we be constantly devoted to the Savior that was constantly devoted to us. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I thank You so much for the gift of Your Son, Jesus. Thank You that He was willing to not just take the cup of Your wrath, but to drink it completely, to drain it dry, so that there would not be a single drop of Your wrath and Your judgment left for us to bear. And in place, He made available to us the full and overflowing cup of Your mercy and Your grace and Your love and Your faithfulness. Father, please help us to live for You, to live for Your Son in response by the power of Your Spirit, to reject sin in all forms, to reject being like Judas, and instead to follow our Savior's example by abandoning our will and by abandoning sin which causes us to betray Him every time we commit to it. Thank You for the ability to be free from that. Help us to use that for Your glory and in accordance with Your will. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.